0: To the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. Listen in as co-hosts Ted Stank and Tom Goldsby take a leap onto the ships of supply chain, crowd surf in the long lines of meeting holiday demand, and wade into the depths of warehouse inventory buildup. They'll cover all the relevant and current topics blocking the canal of your minds and discuss industry issues that keep you up at night. If you enjoy the show, download and subscribe to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management, wherever you listen to podcasts. Without further ado, let's begin our show, where you'll hear what you'd least expect from the people you want to hear it from the most. Our co-hosts, Ted and Tom.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. I'm your co-host, Tom Goldsby, joined by our dear friend, Ted Stank. And Ted, it's great to have you back with us. You had to sit out an episode. Help bring us up to speed on what kept you offline during the last episode.
2: Yeah, so I think the day before the last episode, I actually had total hip replacement of my right hip. I was planning on doing this, but my wife wouldn't let me do it because I was taking pretty strong pain medications. And she was afraid of things that I might say, which was probably pretty wise. It's been five weeks now, five weeks uh, on Tuesday. And I'll tell you what. One of the things I learned is don't hesitate if you have something like this going on. I was practically crippled before the surgery, and within a few days afterwards of the surgery, I was far better than I was when I first went in. So, so modern uh, modern medicine, modern uh, healthcare is uh, is pretty amazing. So, if you're suffering anything like that, go for it.
1: Well, very good. That's actually foreshadowing a little bit what we're going to be covering a little bit later today. So that's great. But hey, Ted, it's great to have you back. Uh, we missed you. We we had Shay Scott on in our last podcast. He did a great job as both co-host and guest, and uh, we, we had a lot of fun. But I hope I didn't violate any HIPAA rules there in talking about your procedure. I, I did have a I think a verbal agreement from you that we could talk about your procedure as we we were quite open in doing. But it's great to have you back. What what did you learn from the whole experience aside from just you know science has maybe made some progress? If you're suffering, you know, seek some help and, and see. What can get you back on two strong feet?
2: Well, I mean, regarding your HIPAA conversation, um, you'll probably have a text on your phone right now from my attorney, so... Um, No, just kidding. Jeez, what did I learn? Um, I learned every time I go into a hospital to have any kind of procedure, it always amazes me at the complexity of operations in a hospital. You know, we're really quick as consumers to get angry when we don't see a doctor for a half hour beyond our time or something doesn't work right. But when you see things that really happen behind the scenes and all the different players that have to be involved and engaged, nursing, anesthesiology, operations, you know, getting into the OR, the doctor himself and their team. It's just really amazing. So hospitals are amazing supply chain organizations and their vendors who, again, foreshadowing for later, are a really critical part of that.
1: Well, it all has to come together one place, one time to deliver that right product, right place, right time, right experience. And uh, fortunately, it seems as though you received great care
2: you know, in terms of right place, right time, et cetera, um, the last thing before they put me out was the doctor wrote a little thing on my right hip saying, this is the hip we're replacing. So you know, make sure you put it in the right hip, not the left hip.
1: Yeah, visual controls. That's something that we teach uh, routinely in, in, in good operations. But, hey, uh, speaking of good operations, how are things going on out there in the supply chain world? You want to transition a little bit to some things that you've been observing and what you've been hearing out there?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I guess for the good part, we have mostly moved off the front pages and are now back on the business pages. There's still things going on related to the economy. I think we're in this kind of period of upheaval where we're waiting to see based on all these differing cues we're getting from the economy and labor, et cetera, about whether we're actually in a recession or going into recession or we're not in a recession because we have full employment. And I don't think anybody really knows what's going on. And Of course, the markets hate uncertainty, so they're tanking because of all the uncertainty to see where we're going. But from a supply chain standpoint, there are a few things going on, I think, that have changed. Um, Consumer sentiment remains relatively low, yet consumers continue to spend. They're shifting some of their spend categories. There's definite evidence that we're shifting away from some of the good spending that just went off the charts during COVID and more towards services spending. If you spend any time in an airport, you can see that people are traveling. The University of Tennessee plays their first home opener of the 2022 football season tonight, and I think we're expecting a full stadium of 100,000 plus. So, I mean, again, people are getting out and spending. Restaurants are, are back in full gear, etc. From a supply chain standpoint, most supply chains are most engaged when goods are being purchased. And so there's a little bit of a slowdown in some of the good supply chains. The West coast is seeing some relief at the ports, although stand by because holiday season is approaching. Um, but interestingly, I think a lot of supply chain managers looked for different network designs and started bringing more things into East coast ports. And so we're still seeing some congestion in places like New York and Norfolk and Savannah. Yeah, it's
1: going back to the the point you opened up with with regard to consumer sentiment, that's one I've been pretty intrigued with, what the University of Michigan has been conducting their consumer sentiment survey. And I thought back in June, we hit like an all-time low for that reading. And that that was interesting because consumer spending did not reflect that. Now, granted, they might have been spending more on fewer items, but it was that inflation that was really dogging us, and particularly things like grocery prices and fuel prices and Fortunately, we've seen a retreat, a very steady retreat in fuel prices. And again, fuel uh, is a common input into just about everything we experience and also just kind of that bellwether indicator. So when fuel is closing in on $5, you can expect people to be pretty salty about it. Now that we're fortunately, hey, I think I filled up the other day at 341 um, and, and then I went down the road a little further and saw it for 329. So I was kind of kicking myself, but, you know, it's a good indication that, Maybe inflation has peaked that said, I do expect maybe the Fed when they reconvene you know, they're probably going to raise interest rates maybe more like a quarter point maybe a half point and they're feeling particularly aggressive and I think that explains some of the the market reactions you've been seeing you know Jerome Powell they all gathered out west about a week ago and said yeah we're we're making some progress, but we're not there yet and you know this this fire needs to get tamped down a little bit more so I think we can expect a little more action out of the Fed and you know people aren't particularly enthused about that, and it's kind of a mixed signals proposition I, I'm hearing you know things are settling down on the West Coast ports even though I'm not aware that they've closed the deal between the union and labor out there, but they're continuing to operate and move containers through uh, l a Long Beach as well as the other West Coast ports a little bit of backup in Savannah, which pointed out but. Uh, You know, we're going into what we'd typically be thinking of peak season as we try to get ready for the holidays. But are are you feeling any particular anxieties?
2: Um, you bring up the West Coast labor issue. I think that could be one of the things that puts us back on the front pages. It's relatively quiet, but um, one of our new faculty, a guy by the name of Don Meyer, has just come from the maritime industry out in California. I was talking to him in the hallway last week and he said, stand by. There are a number of smaller issues, I guess, the, in Seattle, the uh, longshoremen organization in Seattle, which is part of that West Coast labor agreement. They balked at some of the situation. Of course, as our good friend Marianne Wanamaker says, the only kind of growth we're going to have is through increases in productivity. And a big issue coming out of that labor negotiation out in the West Coast is how much automation we're going to allow in our ports. And we need it. I understand the union's perspective on it. Uh, It will be really interesting for, I think, as a bellwether for a lot of Um, union type issues regarding how that labor contract comes out. So that's one cloud on the horizon. I see interesting about the holiday season. I think a lot of companies had pre-ordered expecting congestion. So holiday peak might not be as much of a peak this year as it has been in peak years because we're, we're awash in inventory and a lot of different retail outlets. So, uh, again, there's just a lot of, a lot of unknowns as we head into the, the fall and holiday season.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. Uh, You know, that said, I I just feel like we're in a better place uh, than we've been in, in quite some time, a little more symmetry between supply and demand. And I think Shay did a great job in our last podcast saying, you know, actually if economic activity were to slow down a little bit, that wouldn't be an entirely bad thing, at least from our supply chain standpoint, we don't like to see negative numbers. And, you know, the notion of recession is not something anyone gets particularly excited about, but, you know, having a little, a little slowdown, getting supply and demand a little bit more in concert wouldn't be entirely bad. But you know with regard to those X factors you allude to, you know the, the, the looming X factor we've had now for more than two and a half years has been the pandemic. And you've heard me say this so many times that you know I've come to accept that as the pandemic goes, so go our supply chains. And it's interesting that we're about to to turn into an uh, over a new chapter uh, in this ongoing saga with the release of uh, a new uh, form of vaccines, these bivalent vaccines that are going to be a little more focused on the Omicron variant that has been dogging us now for, for so long. Just yesterday, the FDA approved Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And, and I think that's just then going to mean that these are going to rush out to market. we got to produce them and distribute them. I know the orders have already landed with those pharma makers, but uh Hey, we've got a special guest today that might be able to shed some particular insight and kind of give us a sense for where we're headed.
2: Yeah, so timing is everything, right, Tom? We happen to have today our good friend Michael Koo, who is vice president of clinical supply chain for Pfizer. He has been on the frontline trenches, he and his team, since March of 2020, uh, fighting the good fight and and really, to me, delivering on one of the great manufacturing healthcare supply chain stories of our lifetimes, which is the speed at which they got clinical approval for the COVID vaccine and distributed it, and now have done it again with continued new vaccines for, for some of the new variants. So it's great to have Michael with us. Michael, welcome.
1: Uh, you're, you're a great friend to our, our program. Uh, you're a distinguished fellow with our Global Supply Chain Institute, and it's, it's always the pleasure to have you uh, in our presence. So welcome to the podcast.
3: Thanks, Tom and Ted. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to join you. I am following behind Dr. Shea Scott, so I'll have to live up to your podcast standards here. Really appreciate the opportunity to spend
1: uh, an afternoon with you. It's great to have you with us, and I just have to share with you that as we've reconvened here on campus and we're getting our classes started, I was in front of 365 undergraduate students in our Introduction to Supply Chain course last week. John Bell and I are teaching that class, and, and I think you were featured in the third slide that was presented as we talk about all the ways in which supply chain management can not only impact business, but society Uh, I thought that the moonshot effort of which you were a part was was instrumental. And we we featured your Delivering Hope video that anyone can go out and find on YouTube. Encourage everyone to go out and see it if you haven't already. That uh, was required viewing for our Intro to Supply Chain students. I just thought it framed up how supply chain can step up to meet uh, a critical need for the whole of society.
3: Yeah, no, that's great to hear. Uh, you know, obviously you know, putting that video together for us was just a reflection of what the journey was. Obviously the journey continues, but yeah, if that video helps uh, some of the insights and the mindsets we talked about, I'm glad uh, it's being shared uh, for those that want to learn and know some context.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I describe that as a moonshot effort and, and I don't think it's in any way diminishing what happened in space up 50 years ago, right? You described in that Delivering Hope video that it was like running a marathon in 20 minutes. And, and I'm an avid marathon runner. I know that's really fast from going from the science to the engineering, the manufacturing distribution that had to happen, this incredible team effort. And you pointed out it wasn't just one marathon. It was like three marathons, like so you multiple marathons around the globe because it required coordination of the science as well as the supply chain activities to deliver on that potential. Can you share just a little bit about that maybe what it meant to you personally to be an integral person involved with that effort? I've been at Pfizer now just a
3: little over a decade and didn't know a pandemic was around the corner to lead the supply chain. But let me first tell you, I'm so proud of the team, right? This was a team effort. But when the moment arrived for all of us professionals in this industry, it was our calling. Literally, if that wasn't our calling to raise up to try and make them possible, possible. Don't know what else would have been. So that's why I'm so proud of our our team in Global Clinical Supply, as well as our partners across uh, the ecosystem, a lot of Pfizer colleagues, but also partners outside, including our logistics teams, to get the product to where they needed to be when it mattered the most. For me personally, that rising to the occasion and delivering hope. But when we think about the challenges associated with why it was a marathon, and that's sort of why I use that analogy. I'm sure in marathons, I, I have not won one. I, I think I sent the video. I, I, I wanted to, but it pretty much felt like it in different ways, that there was a lot of sprints along the way. and it, What it felt like is that there's a lot of sprints along the marathon, and the multiple marathons was literally because, actually in that video, those are the countries where we did the clinical trials for that product. So picking the marathon location that you're probably more familiar than I am, that was the places that we had to go. And and the complexity of that was we did not just conduct the trials in the U.S. We did this in Latin America, as well as South Africa, as well as Germany, as well as Tokyo. Lots of places where you can imagine for a product that had to be there at the right temperature before the patient gets the right dose and right location, there was a lot of coordination and for us, managing the complexity of the supply chain and in all cases, always trying to risk mitigate and having um, as much of a pre-mortem scenario planning of what could go wrong to avoid it. Mother nature was another factor that tried to throw a wrench in us trying to deliver hope. And so that was what the team faced and uh, I'm just so proud. right? We, we really worked a lot because we knew it mattered. Early on in my career as a pharmacist, taking care of one patient at a time, and then ultimately coming to industry where you could impact much more than one patient at a time, who knew that I would be thinking about millions and billions of people at a time of where it could be? That's that's why it was a big piece for me as a pharmacist, a healthcare professional in supply chain, why it really mattered the most to think about Everybody now, (laughs) not just those that have, may have a disease. It could be your neighbor, your loved one. It's everybody. So. We had to rise to the occasion, and, and just as I said, I couldn't be prouder to be part of this amazing team that uh, made them possible possible.
2: Michael, Tom and I both know Jim Caffone, who is uh, Vice President of Strategy and Business Operations now with Pfizer Global. But his role was more in supply chain um, during the, the COVID rollout. He's kind of after the clinicals uh, from where you are, uh, so he probably took the handoff from you. We both saw him speak at CSCMP last year, and the story he told literally made me very emotional he said that there's been two things in his work life that have gotten him really emotional one was his son who had suffered cancer and is now fully recovered but seeing pfizer products in the hospital treating his son made him feel just kind of a special feeling about what he did for a career. And then the second time was seeing the trucks push off to start distributing the the COVID vaccine. What were your personal feelings when you saw kind of the, the fruits of all the effort? I remember talking to you in late 2020, early 2021, you were, talk about running a a marathon, trying to talk to you was like running out in the street, running along a marathon or at the 19th mile, trying to catch a word because your team was 24 I'd love to hear your thoughts on when you finally saw those first trucks pull out with the clinically approved vaccine to start delivering to patients for the first time.
3: Yeah, maybe a little advantage, but obviously Jim, uh, Tanya, and Mike McDermott, all the folks in our commercial supply chain, tremendous, right? They the billions of doses. And from my reflection early on, where I always sit is that I have the only supply in the world of this to start. And we start with that mindset of, I have a huge responsibility because we're going to figure out whether the trials can execute and deliver the data and and show that the product is safe and effective, my team has to be flawless in as much as we can do to get it to the hospitals where the trials are going to be. And so one of the biggest reflections for me was just the fact that when we were able to get the product deployed and have to be able to get it at those extreme temperatures, we'll just call it for now, without really having the impact in terms of just the disruptions that was ongoing i thought it was really important for me to reflect on how much everybody was covering each other to make sure we mitigate every risk you can think of and and i think when we first got the product to our first clinical sites in the us it was special because we knew if we can get the studies done and get the data you know that's what could really deliver hope. And, and I think that was the first part of, of sort of seeing the product come in and getting it for our team, having it packaged, labeled, and get it deployed with all the approvals we needed to have, right? It's highly regulated industry. All the approvals have to be in place before you can move it. And then to track every one of those vials to the end was so important. And so that maybe was a big piece, knowing, all right, we've got a shot at this. We've got a shot at this. You know, the other part in the video was for us that every vial, every minute mattered because, you know, a vial sitting on a shelf and not in a patient's arm was not going to make an impact. So we needed to make sure. If you saw the video, you realized how much in supply chain, you don't ever want to drain the depot down to zero or negative and hope that everything shows up the next day. But we had to do that. We had to challenge ourselves to get a little uncomfortable with the fact that that's exactly the premise we need to get everything in place every second, every minute mattered uh, lives are uh, at stake. So that to me was a big piece.
1: There was just so much interest obviously around this and we were penning hopes on the science as well as that manufacturing and, and distribution. And Ted and I were both fielding a fair number of media uh, inquiries about what is the challenge associated with here? And it was kind of our job, Hey. Michael, you go do your work. Don't bother getting in front of the media. We'll, we'll try to take this on. And, and just to talk though about the challenges, you mentioned the ultra cold conditions earlier, right? And it's like, you know, we can't allow hot spots in the supply chain here. This this is an ultra cold supply chain, and we know there are a lot of partners within and beyond Pfizer to pull this off. And you continue to do that day in and day out. And, and I'll have to say, it's been remarkable to see. The incredible consistency, the reliability of the systems that have been in place to deliver that and rallying this your team within Pfizer, but in this this larger team. I mean, really, how do you pull that off? I know in the Delivering Hope video, you spoke of some mindsets that you had to instill uh, in your your team. Can, can you share with us some of those mindsets?
3: Yeah, let me share it. It's it's really uh, I had a chance to really reflect uh, about 18 months coming up to 18 months at the beginning of the pandemic to just figure out what it took. Because we talk about at the end of the day, the team, the talent, the colleagues we call our team members advisor. We're we're gonna be the critical factors to actually delivery of whatever we need to accomplish. And I boiled it down to pretty much five mindsets, starting with the fact that caring was the first mindset I saw. And I defined caring as compassion in action. You know, everybody knew, as I said, it was their calling and also our CEO told us that if not us, then who, right? If we have the chance to be able to do this, we got to do it. But the caring was there. We cared about each other first and foremost, the health and safety of our colleagues uh, who were still there frontline, as well as the rest of the healthcare ecosystem. But we need to make sure that we cared enough to be able to get things done when obviously the conditions were not the most optimal. So having that compassion action was so important that I saw in our team members. The second one was, The word I like to use, curiosity, which uh, I define as exploration and action. In those moments when you've not seen it before in our lifetime, at least to experience this piece, you have to be explorers. Figure out solutions to be able to accomplish something. And, And we learned in our what we call our light speed mindset how to take what we call white space out of the process. We literally had to try and walk the vial and understand every step Not because we're questioning how everybody did it, but we were all there collectively to figure out, is there a better way, not just a correct way to do things? So the curiosity was so important. The third one, it's a team sport, collaboration, which I define as connection and action. You had to connect. And unfortunately, we were either, you know, those that were truly essential were in the floor, in the manufacturing suites, and those of us who weren't as essential to be physically there. We were on Zoom calls, WebExes, Teams calls, trying to coordinate everything logistically from uh, operations with our extended partnership network. And so not being able to collaborate and connect was going to be detriment to trying to make them impossible possible. So collaboration was key. The fourth one I said was we had to be creative. And creativity is defined as innovation and in action. And we had to be innovative. And I use Professor Linda Hill, my professor, now a dear colleague and and friend at Harvard Business School. She defines innovation as anything that is new and useful. So we were looking for the not only new, but we had to get something useful that we hadn't done in supply chain. And leveraging our digital tools that we'd been on the journey was so important. Even though it wasn't perfect, it gave us good insight to make decisions and to have some more better foresight to pivot or zig or zag or go left or right when something threw a wrench in the cycle. As you know, Mother Nature does that. And last but not least, the last mindset, which actually is a value Pfizer, is the word courage, which I define as conviction and action. At the end of the day, the conviction to act, the courage to act is really what it boils down to if you're going to make things happen. And, and we had to be courageous in some of the things to do because we had to push against the status quo or the norms that we thought were how we did it but we said we can't settle for that And so the conviction to act and for us you know sometimes innovation is not just about innovation it's about decision making if you can't make decision with velocity and, and I think you know I define velocity as speed with purpose behind it, it's really hard to actually make an impact So to me those five mindsets, I took some time to jot it down, reflect really what the team exhibited across the board, as well as our partners. And we continue to exhibit these mindsets, as you know, the announcement yesterday and the pieces across the board to continue to deliver that
2: hope. Hey, Michael, you talked a lot just now about... Team and what your team has been able to accomplish. And, you know, we've known you for a long time and in our position, we get a chance to know a lot of different leaders with a lot of different styles. I think the proof is in the pudding and in, in terms of what you've been able to do. Could you comment a little bit on how you led your team during this period of huge uncertainty, really with amazing results? Give us some of your thoughts on leadership and leading that team.
3: I think I've also had to reflect on just what was the essence of my leadership team as well as the team in general. And I boiled it down to the word trust. I think that was the big essence we talked about that. And trust, again, unfortunately, I guess I like C's. Uh, It it sort of boiled down to three C's when I look at trust. And it's still to this day really important as we think about teams going forward in time. But trust starts with probably the word competence. Uh, People have to be competent. That's table stakes, you know, for somebody to trust you and I'm so proud, as I said, just to be part of this amazing team. I have highly talented, very competent, exceptional leaders and team members. So the competency is always there because of what we've achieved to do in our our purpose of delivering breakthroughs, right? At Pfizer, uh, deliver breakthrough medicines and vaccines that change patients' lives. So to me, that's the first part of the trust that I saw. People were highly competent. But the other part that was important is the next C is character. The leaders all had character, and we all had diverse points of views, which is great. Why is that important? Because we all don't want to have just one answer. I I, I used to talk to a lot of my mentees over time that, is it important to have the correct answer or the best answer? I tell them to think about that scenario, (laughs) right? Because there could be several correct answers, but in this case, you want the best answer. And the best answer is to have a lot of different diverse perspectives, which means, for me, having a diverse leadership team with not only diversity of thought, but also diversity of of backgrounds. And we usually what we have is a lot of what we call creative abrasion. (laughs) The term goes that it's good to make sure we abrade a little bit in the right way so we challenge ourselves not to just settle for the first answer that comes out of a possible solution set. We really want to have the maximal solution set. And that means to unleash the best answer you have to get everybody's voices heard. I, I tell people is there is that two Cs, and the last one is C is the connection that we have here. And so to me, a lot of the leadership teams, there's a lot of trust. And I'll tell you, that trust was well built way, way before the pandemic happened. We spent a lot of time getting to know each other, and you know, the proverbial during the pandemic, how are you feeling? Was a question we'd ask, and it really meant a lot, even more. But it wasn't that we didn't ask that question before the pandemic. So, from a leadership perspective, the empathy and the know that we're on this together is really critical. And sometimes that people ask me, you know, so what's my responsibility leading the global clinical supply chain at Pfizer? I said, I, I really boiled it down to maybe three bullets now in management. My goal is to give my team air cover, clear some roadblocks and maybe help them put out a fire but other than that you know they're the ones that deliver hope and i'm just uh, happy to be there at the front uh, and just privileged to be part of the marathon with a few sprints along the way i think some of them are much better sprinters than i am
1: <laughs> but uh, but it is uh, it is a team sport and i couldn't be prouder thank you so much for sharing those perspectives and and you you've clearly reflected on this and i credit you despite the prurried pace of trying to get this job done routinely and, 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 and saving lives, as, as, as I think we have to point out, you know, to have that opportunity to distill these observations to their essence. Now, Ted and I, we would take like 200,000 words to fill up a textbook. I'm thinking yours would be like a, a reader that people would actually read front to back and, and digest. So we appreciate that. Now, we did have the opportunity to have you on campus during our GSCI advisory board late last month, I think, and and you dropped a concept on us that I have to believe was essential to making the impossible possible and, and leading through this great uncertainty. And that was the notion of contextual intelligence. And everyone in the room picked up a pen and wrote it down. I think Ted went to the whiteboard and wrote it on the whiteboard. Can you share with us what you meant by contextual intelligence and what role it played in delivering these results?
3: Great point. Yeah, I've learned obviously a lot from a lot of people, so this was obviously not my words. But th- to give us some context, I was actually catching up with Professor Linda Hill, and she had brought that information uh, to me, and I reflected on what it took for us not just to be competent in what we do to do things. And usually context is always a good word, right? For us to make best decisions, you should have better context to make the best decision in business or in life. And so, actually, she pointed me to the fact that contextual intelligence was something that was discussed by another professor from Harvard Business School. His name is Professor Tarun Khanna. And he wrote in an article in, um, I think, September 2014 or something to that effect, where he defined contextual intelligence as the ability to understand the limits of our knowledge and to adapt that knowledge to an environment different from one in which. It was developed. That was sort of his definition, and and it starts with the fact that you know we're in this supply chain world that uh, we're global, right? We're global and local, and sometimes you need both the local perspective and a global view to execute a global supply chain. In some of that context, we may have a misalignment if we make an assumption from a U.S. view to what something would need to be, say, in Europe or in Latin America. And so his perspective is that you need to understand the different contextual backgrounds so that you can achieve it, because if you just transplant your views in one, you might completely get it wrong for a different market. Why I brought that up in our GSI forum was that I sort of build on top of that, maybe expand that definition that was said just recently, is to then add in the other things that I expect people in supply chain now and in the future to be able to do is to build also not just that contextual intelligence, Piece of that definition, but also more business acumen as well as emotional intelligence to go with it. I think leaders nowadays in supply chain need to have not just the competency of, of the technical competence, they need to have this contextual intelligence to be very successful in a very complex <laughs> geopolitical world where decisions, if you're going to try and make the best decision, you have to have that contextual intelligence. So, you know, I know that was the word I dropped and uh, wasn't mine, but I, I've been using it in lots of ways. But hopefully now the context of the way I use the word with what is described by Professor Trinkana, as well as adding in the business acumen and EQ, I think that's what supply chain leaders now and in the future have to master.
2: Well, that's fantastic. Michael, hey, we don't want to overstay our welcome with you. Thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait till the next evolution in your life when you move on to the D's Cause you had all those great C's. It's just amazing. <laughs> now, so now we need to move to the D's. Seriously, one of the most thoughtful, thought provoking leaders that, that I've come across in my many years in this business. And it's always a great joy to talk to you. Um, thanks again so much, not only for being a friend of our program, but for what you've done for humanity. If that doesn't sound too, uh, too contrived, I, I guess. Tom, you got any parting comments with Michael before we wrap? No, just I, again,
1: echo those sentiments. And, and I'll just offer that I, I was really excited to hear that FDA news. I know it had been brewing for a while. And I am eager, I know Ted is as well, to go out to our local clinician and get that Omicron variant vaccine and, and make sure uh, that, that me and my family are safe and then just encourage everyone to go out and do it. So, so again, thank you so much and really appreciate your, your insights today, but also. You know, you've, you've been quite generous pre-pandemic, through the pandemic of your time. And I should also point out that we make use of your Harvard Business School cases. Uh, what the, You have three of them now in which uh, you and your organization are featured, I believe. So uh, we, we teach and preach from those, certainly. But, hey, thanks for giving us so much hope and inspiration and being a friend to us personally as well as our program.
3: No, thank you very much, Tom and Ted, for having me. It's, it's always a pleasure uh, and it's so great to see you and hopefully get a chance to see you in person again to catch up, but also to learn from both of you. I know you guys are the ones to understand where things are and I, I know I get a lot from our conversations that I should pass on to my team. And to the point of yesterday's news, we're very craig excited. I just uh, was thanking my Lightspeed leadership team uh, this morning on that milestone. And just like them, I am with you <laughs> as far as it's available. I'm there. I'm starting to travel again and like that booster so I can uh, make sure I can see friends and family and colleagues uh, going forward somewhere in a safe way.
2: Great. Thank you, Michael. And thank you to our listeners. As always, you can contact us with any questions or comments at gsci.utk.edu. That's a wrap for today, and we will talk to you on the next round.
0: To Tennessee on Supply Chain Management. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe via your favorite listening platform such as iTunes or Spotify. And if you have questions, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Leave or reply in our show notes at gscipodcast.com or email your questions to gsci at utk.edu. Join us next time in our pursuit to prove that supply chain management is more fun than you think.